Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question. How does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space and my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by Riccardi's Violin Shop. I've been bringing my basses to Rob Riccardi for years, from basic setups, rehairing bows, and gluing seams, to the major overhaul he recently did on my carved bass. Rob has always kept my basses in great shape and sounding their best. Located in South Jersey, a stone's throw away from Philadelphia, is an added bonus that will save you time and money for all your string repair needs. Check them out at ricardiviolinshop.com. My guest today is Andy Bianco, guitarist, educator, and composer based in Brooklyn. Originally from Pittsburgh, he graduated from Berklee College of Music before moving to New York City. His new album, NYC Stories, featuring George Burton on piano and Wayne Escoffrey on saxophone, is out on Outside In Music. In our conversation, we talked about a wide range of topics, including moving to a bigger scene, solo guitar concepts, composing, building a band, and much more. Andy Bianco, thanks for... How you doing? Doing pretty good, man. Thanks for taking the time to be on the, on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I usually I start Thank out. Thank you. Not a problem. Uh, I start out episodes a lot with um, reminiscing about how we met a lot. Yeah, I think that's a pretty yeah. good starting point. And uh, we met doing a podcast for our the label that represents us uh, outside yep. in music. And uh, I got to you know listen to your music and um, reached out to you to be on the show. And you were like, yeah, cool. So. Uh, thanks for, for being on the show. Um, thanks for having me. I'd like to start out with just a little bit with the, just how, how are you doing? How is, uh, New York? You are living in Brooklyn, correct? Yeah, I'm in, um, Windsor Terrace. So I'm just south of, uh, Park Slope and I'm just pretty much below Greenwood Cemetery and Prospect Park. So I've been here for, um, it's going to be nine years in October, and I mean, I, lo- I love this neighborhood. I love my apartment, and um, I'm, I'm really close to Prospect Park, and this this apartment has really good, I like to say it has good music karma, because this used to be a place where there's a lot of um, Berkeley guys that lived here, and I'm originally, I went to Berkeley uh, for music school, and um, this actually used to be the saxophonist George Garzone's Brooklyn apartment. Um, and, uh, you know, he would stay here because for, for a long time he was traveling to and from 
Boston and New York. He would teach at Berkeley and he would teach at New England Conservatory. And then he had his regular Monday night gig um, with the Fringe at the Lizard Lounge and then later the Lilypad in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But then he would come down to New York because he would teach at the New School and I think I think NYU too. So he would he had a lot of teaching. He was going back and forth. And then eventually he got like a, Berkeley gave him a, a, a really good uh, teaching gig up there, like a, a full-time gig, which is great because, you know, he's, he's tremendous. Um, but uh, I had Berkeley friends that were living here that knew him and that had studied with him. And eventually he moved out and a space opened up and, I'm you know, I took advantage of it and I moved in. And the thing that's, the thing that's funny is he used to uh, rehearse... NYU and uh, New School ensembles in, in, in this room. So, and there's, it's, it, there's a lot of people that have, have been here. I was, recently I was, uh, I was talking to Ben Monder, the guitar player, and um, yeah, I remember I had gotten a lesson with him and uh, you know, I told him where I lived and he's like, oh yeah, he's like, yeah, I've, I've, I've played sessions over there before, so I'm like, that's awesome. And he lives in my neighborhood as well. He's a couple blocks down. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I love this neighborhood. It's very quiet. It's very green. It's got good karma. There's still quite a, a lot of musicians that live in the building. Um, New York has been great. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, there's, there's definitely, we're dealing with a lot of tension. I mean, I've basically just been teaching um, online the past uh, three months since the lockdown happened. I haven't had any gigs, uh, obviously, um, but I've been teaching. I've been just working on solo guitar playing arrangements, stuff like that. I've been um, catching up on reading, doing some other sort of stuff, uh, just trying to develop other skills, like working on some financial sort of uh, stuff. Some, uh, I do some, some, some of that in the day just to make extra money and, and just sort of trying to plan ahead for what the future is going to look like as per the rules of, of the quarantine and the lockdown that came into place a couple of months ago. I mean, I have not left my neighborhood just because I'm trying to you know, follow procedure and, and stop the spread and keep everyone collectively, you know, trying to keep everyone safe. So I have not left my neighborhood. I have not taken the subway, which is an unbelievable because <laughs> I'm normally I'm on, I'm on it constantly, like, you know, whether I'm teaching or going to gigs or whatever. But um, so I have not taken the subway or left my neighborhood in three months. And the furthest that I will leave is when I go because I, I exercise and I jog in Prospect Park regularly and that's usually the furthest that I get but other than that I just stay in my neighborhood now as things are easing up and thankfully um, Como just said the other day that you know we we have managed to stop the spread um, I think in terms of cases of COVID they're down to like 50 a day whereas at the height uh, in mid-April they were up to like 7.99 actually I'm sorry 7.99 was the amount of people that were dying each day which is it's, it's horrific um but it looks like we have managed to stop the spread thank god for that so new york is going to be opening up and i definitely intend to get up to to get out and and, and reconvene with my friends and, and and hopefully play some sort of socially distanced sessions and things like that because you know it would be nice to to get out so yeah i hear you i actually just left uh, my neighborhood for the first time a couple of days ago and, oh wow! Uh, Are you now? You in Philly? Yeah, I'm or? in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Oh, sweet! And um, I'm in a, a neighborhood that's like I describe it to people as the first first uh, neighborhood where you start to see trees. 
Oh, cool. So um, it doesn't, people who visit might not realize that it's Philadelphia because it's, it's a little on the, on the edges, but yeah. Um, so I've been, been away from a, a lot of the, the protests. I actually didn't even know that the protests were, the first day of protests in Philly were actually happening at all. I, I, I had all my phones off and everything and, you know, I, yeah. I just didn't notice it. I couldn't hear anything from where I am, but regardless, um, uh, you mentioned you, you went to Berkeley, um, and that you moved to New York about nine years ago. Where are you from, uh, previous to New York and, and, and Boston? Where are you from originally? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. Yeah. I know Pittsburgh yeah. pretty, pretty okay. I've been, I've been there a couple, a uh, bunch of times and on nice. tours and stuff. Yeah. A lot of the Philly bands kind of tour out that way, like the Philly to Chicago kind of loop. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so hit, hit Pittsburgh on the way, and uh, Pittsburgh's a great town. Um, what, yeah, man. What was the, what was moving to New York like uh, for you, or or even moving to Boston? Because uh, I know a lot of, this is a theme that comes up a lot. Uh, in the podcast that I like to explore because I know a lot of students who who are like in high school or in college outside mm-hmm. of major jazz hubs mm-hmm. and it can be very intimidating for them to make that leap to move to New York or to Philly or mm-hmm. Chicago or Boston or whatever mm-hmm. so uh, what, what, what was that like for you and um, yeah what, what, what's the story behind it How, what was it like for you and um, any advice you might have for anybody thinking about moving to New York? Well, there's a lot to unpack with that last question. Um, uh, well, I mean, with me, I originally, out of high school, um, I was going to go to the University of North Texas. Um, and then sort of at the last minute... I decided to stay in Pittsburgh and go to University of Pittsburgh and study with my jazz guitar teacher, Joe Negri, who's still around, God bless him, he's in his 90s, and he's an old school uh, jazz guitar player uh, coming out of you know the tradition of Tal Farlow and Barney Kessel, um, Joe Pass, but he was actually um, sort of generation before. I mean, he really kind of came out of the style of you know Charlie Christian. But so I stayed in... Uh, Pittsburgh, went to University of Pittsburgh, played in the jazz ensemble um, under the direction of Nathan Davis, uh, who's, you know, he, he built up the, the jazz program at Pitt, and he would have an annual Pitt jazz seminar each year in which he would bring in James Moody and Russell Malone, Kenny Barron. Over the years in the past, he'd brought in Dexter Gordon, um, you know, uh, John Faddis, uh, Wallace Roney, George Cables, a lot of a lot of heavy heavy cats, Frank Foster, um, you know, and so that was that was that was a good experience, uh, but I it it wasn't really there wasn't really enough in that program for me in terms of just I mean it's a great program, but I wanted more of a competitive environment, so I had a chance to go to a, a Berkeley summer guitar sessions. Um, after my sophomore year at Pitt and you know I got a scholarship to go to Berkeley so it made it possible for me to go there so I transferred up to Berkeley and you know I remember the first time when I went to that actual program 
I had a weird experience when I went to the summer program because I was really coming from like just really into sort of bebop and, and just straight ahead and I remember I had a lab with Mick Goodrick and and I didn't really understand like I wasn't hip to ECM records or I wasn't hip to like John Abercrombie and I didn't understand what Mick Goodrick was doing but I, I, I was already I had already been made aware of, of his um, extraordinary uh, book called The Advancing Guitarist by a guitar player tremendous guitar player in Pittsburgh named Mark Lucas who studied with Mick and went to uh, was a in New England years ago, um, so I was aware of that book, and that book was tremendous in terms of just a just a revolutionary way of viewing the fretboard and the guitar and understanding harmony and uh, assimilating more modern pianistic and other word and, and otherwise harmony on the guitar. So, you know, I, initially when I went to this this guitar program at, at Berkeley, the guitar sessions in which I got the scholarship, I was like, wow, this is totally kind of mind blowing. I didn't know if I was really into it, but when I got the scholarship, it made it possible for me to go there, provided that I was able to get more money from them. And I was, when I was there, I was able to get increases in my scholarship. And I was, you know, grateful and fortunate that my, my parents were able to help pay for some of my, well, a lot of my, my college. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that way, but I was able to get the rest of it covered. Um, but, uh, when I started in Berkeley, um, the following winter semester, it was very, very overwhelming for me. Because when I went in, I, I auditioned and I got good numbers. Um, and I went in and I was really overwhelmed like even the first week because I tested into ear training four. And that was like, it was so much homework. Like it was like, you know, using movable dough and sightseeing these like bebop or like almost like Frank Zappa-esque like, uh, you know, solos, and I'm like, this is literally taking me like two or three hours to get through a night, and that's not to mention all the other guitar stuff, and then it's like, oh, I have to do this McCoy Tyner transcription by Thursday, and so my first semester at Berkeley, the other thing is, I felt like um, that the numbers that they gave me were too high, and I felt like I was a little, like I was kind of drowning, like with some of the other players and the ensembles that I was in, and I felt really guilty, and I felt like I didn't deserve to be there, and I felt like other people, maybe some other people thought that I wasn't good enough to be there. So, so I, I shedded really, really hard. Um, but I kind of, I sort of went at it a little bit too hard. And I, I, before, prior to that experience, um, like when I was in Pittsburgh and when I went to Pitt, it was a lot more laid back and I didn't really have a disciplined practice routine. You know, I, I didn't really start to learn how to play over changes until I was say 19. Um, and then I was just starting to learn it. But I was, you know, when I went to Berkeley, I started trying to implement this very rigid practice structure and I would try to practice eight hours a day. And, and what ended up happening is I really kind of burnt myself out in my first semester. And I, you know, I remember thinking like that I was going to flunk out and I actually did really well, but I really burnt myself out. And at the end of that semester, um, I went back to Pittsburgh for the summer and I, I like I literally couldn't touch my guitar for a month. And uh, I was kind of really just sort of in a weird space. I burnt myself out. I didn't. And, and what happened is I sort of went in with unrealistic expectations for myself. And plus, I was really, really beating myself up because I felt like, OK, these numbers that I got, they're too high. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be here. And um, it's funny because at the time I remember there's certain people that I remember. And I still from time to time, I'll see them today in New York. Like, for example, David Hazeltine, who my first semester 
years ago at Berkeley, he taught the Cannonball Adderley Ensemble. And I remember kind of hanging with him a little bit. And I remember telling him, I was like, you know, man, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time. And he was very encouraging, you know. You know, he's like, you know, he was like, look, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. He's like, you know, there's a lot of guitar players here. I think you're one of the better ones. He was really encouraging. And he was, I mean, he was just, you know, him on piano and then on, on, on organ. I remember, you know, and I remember just he was very encouraging and very supportive. And I remember I told him that, like, you know, when I would see him, like, at Smoke, I'm like, you don't remember me, but I appreciate you, man. Thank you, you know, and, like, and uh, and that that was, that was, that was really important. And I had a lot of other um, people that were really, uh, you know, encouraging um, to me at, at Berkeley, like Rick Peckham, who's the assistant chair of the guitar department, uh, my, my teacher, Bruce Bartlett, uh, Mark White, um, you know, but in any case, yeah, so my first, my first semester up there was very overwhelming. Uh, and then my second and third semesters, I started to find my niche. I started to find my group of friends and, and the people that I, that were, were, you know, that I started uh, performing and writing with and just leading bands with, and I started writing, and then I kind of found my footing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was really, I mean, it, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I went there, um, because even though, I mean, University of Pittsburgh was great, and it's still a great school, and Nathan Davis, his, I mean, rest in peace, his program was great, but it's just, it wasn't, like, I was, there wasn't that many guitar players, there's maybe one other guitar player there, Whereas Berkeley, it was so competitive, and I, you'd just be like, man, like everywhere you look, there's these burning cats from Europe and from wherever, from Asia, you know, especially from, from Israel. Um, some of my, my, my best friends and colleagues, I mean, still today are from there, and it's just like, you know, the, there's, I have great admiration for the whole sort of, all of the cats that went to like Ramon in Tel Aviv, and then you know, guys that are on the, and doing so much in the jazz scene today, it's just like, their work ethic and their drive and their dedication and just the level that they were playing at was really inspiring, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That, that touches on a lot of, uh, things that I've experienced and also things I hear from, from like, uh, younger players coming up is that that sense yeah. of burnout is, is, is real, you know, is real, real. Yeah. And, um, uh, I was try, you know, I've gone through it myself, and I was try to uh, encourage the younger younger players. I f I feel like there's a big stage of burnout um, in in like the first year or so, and also after graduation, the kind of oh, yep. what do I do now? Oh, I have this degree. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I've been playing, you know, or. Uh, you know, a student's been playing all the time at their school with all their friends, yep. and now they're just kind of thrown into the real world where that time and space isn't there anymore. And then they got to go find work and 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 compete on the scene. So, what was um, moving to New York like for you? And like, what, like, when did that click for you? That that was like, all right, I got to go to New York. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because the prospect of moving to New York, um, you know, I, I viewed that as quite daunting as well. And I remember there was a couple of different sort of exoduses of, of uh, people from Boston and Berkeley that would go to New York. I remember in, in 2005, a lot of my friends moved to New York. Um, and I remember, 
I remember having some opportunities to, to move in with some people. And I remember one good friend of mine was, was really trying to persuade me to go. And I was like, ah, I was like, man, you know, I'm not ready to go this year. I need to save up more money. And I'm just, I'm just not ready. And, uh, you know, my one friend of mine really, really made a really strong case to try to get me to go. And then I had others that, you know, that I could have moved to want to get me to go as roommates. But I was just like, eh, not ready yet. One of the things that I wanted to do, Nicholas, is, um, and this was something that I learned from, um, I was grateful enough to be in, to study in an ensemble with Hal Crook, the trombonist at Berkeley my last year. And, and that was really, really impactful for me because it really got me, I mean, he was such a great teacher and he really would focus in on what he felt you needed to do and you know what areas of your playing and where you were coming from you, you needed to strengthen and he really did that with me and it was it was kind of it was painful but with him he was coming from such a place of love that it was great I mean and there'd be times where he would call me like we had ensembles on a Friday in the afternoon and there was times when like in the early evening he would call me and he'd be like hey man you know I felt like I was a little harder to you in an ensemble you know I just want you to know I think you're great and and I was like, man, that's so awesome. Like, you don't need to, like, I, like, I was like, you don't need to do that. But the fact that he did that was great. I mean, Hal Crook, definitely one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. Um, and uh, such a great guy. And one of the things that, based on studying with him, that I wanted to do in terms of bettering my uh, straight ahead playing and, and just my repertoire is I wanted to recreate an environment where I would be playing with my own trio, straight ahead jazz, you know, several hours a day working, you know, six to seven days a week for many months. Because as I understand it, you know, in the old days, that's, that's the environment that it was. You could be playing at a club for six weeks, you know, with your band, and then you really develop an ensemble sound. You play at a hotel for five, six weeks. Now you don't have that really anymore at all, unless you do these hotel gigs or if you do cruise ship gigs. So I had known friends that had really strengthened their playing in terms of guitar playing all around in terms of every aspect of it, but more specifically to zoom into the context of vocabulary, of trio playing, of, you know, really being able to accompany yourself in terms of harmony, in terms of supporting yourself harmonically, in terms of repertoire, language, stuff like that. I had quite a few friends that had done that experience prior to Berkeley, and it really sort of strengthened them. So I was like, okay, in accordance with what I want to continue to study, uh, based on what I learned from Hal Crook and, 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 and others, you know, I want to try to have an environment where I'm honing my repertoire skills as a jazz guitar player in a trio setting where I'm literally playing every day for a long time. And leading jazz trios on a cruise ship is, is a place that you can do that. So my goal from when I was, from like when I got out of school was to try to make that happen. Um, I mean, I did other stuff in between when I graduated and when I ultimately did lead jazz trios on cruise ships, but that was sort of a goal in terms of for my playing. So it took me, a, I guess, about two years, and then I finally sorted it out where I was able to lead jazz trios. So I led jazz trios for about a year and a half um, on Carnival cruise lines, and that tremendously, tremendously improved my playing improve my repertoire, improve my confidence, my harmonic sense of the fretboard, all of that stuff, time, feel, everything. And then there was sort of a lull kind of a period where I was thinking about moving straight to New York, but I ended up not doing that. There was some other competitions and auditions I wanted to do. And I ultimately, so there's a 
period in Pittsburgh where I was kind of drifting a bit. I worked on recording my my second official record, which I ended up doing. Um, and then I ended up doing another uh, cruise ship opportunity with a quartet that was going to the Mediterranean and, and the Middle East and stuff like that. And I wanted to travel and save money, but I also wanted to play. The second uh, cruise ship experience that I did was with a, a larger quartet, and we played a lot of jazz, but it was a much wider repertoire. So that book was maybe 300 songs, so that was really good for me in terms of just memorizing all these songs. So by the time that was done, it's like I had all of this repertoire eternalized, and I, I was confident. So by then I was like, okay, it's now or never. I have been putting off moving to New York for maybe a year or two now. I have to go now. It's like, and, and I'm, I still have, I'm a, like I, the prospect of it I bring, gives me much trepidation, but I have to do it. And just like that, a week after I got back from, from Europe, um, it's it, literally, it's like, it's uncanny. It's like, it, it's like it's such a strange coincidence because the person, the one person who I remember thinking, if there was one friend from school that I would want as a roommate, it would be this guy. Because not only is he, is he a, you know, he's a great player and he's a musician, he's just a great guy and he's a great, I know he'd be a great roommate. He had a spot open up in his place, which was here. So he's like, and there was a Danish guitar player who I actually knew from my very first week at Berkeley who had been living here. He was moving back to Copenhagen. Spot opened up. I was like, this is like too good to be true. This is like a sign. So I was able to jump on it and literally like within a, well, within like, I think a month or two after I got back from Europe, I came up here. So it was a type of thing where I was like, look, I don't necessarily have a specific plan about like what I want to do like but I know that I just have to get here because I can't allow my indecision or my anxiety about New York prevent me from coming here any longer but the one thing that I do know is my experience leading jazz trios on cruise ships playing in and around Pittsburgh with older players and professional jazz musicians and stuff um, and also well both of the cruise ship contracts it, it made me more of a seasoned professional and it gave me the confidence where I was like, okay, I could pretty much do any gig, or, or I'll take any, like, I'm, you know, I feel like I could pretty much do any gig, and I have a good detector for what's BS and what's not, so. Yeah, yeah, that's great, that's a great uh, takeaway from from that, that I've also experienced, is you're building up a little confidence before, yeah. before making the move. Um, yeah. I, I did my undergrad uh, in the Lehigh Valley, which is couple hours north of philadelphia very small scene and uh, is that near stroudsburg yes yes very yeah, close it's be- beautiful be- beautiful country oh there. it's it's amazing but there's yeah that it's like i said very small scene at the time it yeah. was basically like my teacher and me and that was like right. the bass players and so right he was and he was frank sinatra jr's bass player so whenever oh, he, wow. he was on the road with frank jr yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was just me and I was getting all kinds of calls for gigs that I was like not ready for at all which was a really good that's uh, great man. great place to be um, yeah but my teacher ended up hooking me up with um, the Glenn Miller Orchestra which I toured with for a while which is I think kind great. of similar to a, a cruise gig where it's just like you know they do like 330 yeah. shows a year or something like that something crazy like yeah. that so after I was done with that it gave me the confidence and a little bit of street cred. Yeah. Uh, especially since uh, a lot of Philly players rotate into that band. 
so I got to know some Philly people and um, yeah that, that's great building little small step confidence builders are really good um, you mentioned before you're you're in some of the things you've been working on during the the quarantine uh, and you talked about um, solo arrangements for guitar and that, that's something that uh, I'd like to talk about a little bit that jumped out yeah. at me in uh, listening to uh, some of your stuff online uh, specifically you have a solo arrangement of Isfahan that I, I that jumped out at me that that I, I liked a lot and oh thanks man appreciate that yeah absolutely nice of you to say and during the, the quarantine for me I've been um, working on piano a lot so I'm, awesome. I'm trying to think uh, harmonic structures and trying to hear uh, harmonies in different ways. And um, uh, I, I would just like to hear your thoughts about playing solo guitar arrangements and how you come up with your voicings and just really anything you want to talk about uh, in terms of solo guitar. I, 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 that's very interesting to me because I don't have any experience with guitar and I also kind of find it sometimes hard I don't know I'm so used to hearing piano that yeah. sometimes when I hear guitar uh, voicings or like incomplete voicings or or yep. things I'm just like what is that <laughs> you know yeah it's it's sure it could be harder for me to react to so you know just you know whatever you're thinking whatever your thoughts are on um, solo arrangements for guitar I'd, I'd really appreciate to hear yeah man thanks I mean that's a really great topic um, you know I mean for me I mean I I can I tend to be a pretty extroverted person so when it comes to music I really really enjoy like interacting with other players on the bandstand I mean especially with jazz I mean that just that just gives me so much sort of inspiration um, and I've always I've never really been a huge fan of solo playing because a lot of times I kind of feel like when I would do gigs, I, I, I would get bored or I feel like it's kind of lonely. Like, I want to interact with someone else, you know? Um, you know, I mean, specifically talking with jazz. The other thing is um, I've always felt solo playing is the most difficult, uh, or at least for me, the most difficult sort of aspect of, of playing Maybe duo accompanying a singer is, is is definitely up there, way up there. But but the solo playing and you know that I've always been like, man, that's just so hard. And I haven't done a whole lot of it. And again, you know, my nature, I tend to prefer to be in larger settings. And I would even rather. I'm not really a fan of like doing the guitar duo thing. I've never really liked that. I would much rather play with a drummer duo. Like I love that. Um, or even with a bass player or piano player. But the two guitar thing. Unless it's done really well and really creatively, I don't know. It's just it, there's a lot of clashing that can happen, and I'm just not really into it. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do is I'm a big believer in you know trying to take the most uh, positive angle on negative or, 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 or undesirable situations. So I was like, well. You know, you know this. This stinks. Both of my CD release parties are, are canceled, and all my other uh, gigs around town with my own stuff are done, as well as everything else. So I'm going to focus on working on my solo playing because I have nobody else that I can play with technically. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to do is, um, 
in the context of guitar trio playing, I wanted to kind of spruce up a lot of arrangements of tunes that I would do, specifically talking about with the type of voicings that I would use. Um, and I noticed that a lot of default voicings that I would use were like two and three note voicings, which there's a lot of utility for. You can move quickly, you can play, put melody above and below the chord when it's small like that. Um, but, you know, and that's coming out of more of an older sort of, of style. But there was also um, some stuff that I was really inspired by that I, you know, resulted from players that I had seen in, in the city. And I'm like, well, here's another opportunity to try to assimilate a lot of the inspiration I got from seeing other guitar players, like Vic Juris uh, being one. Another one is Peter Mazza, who I think is a tremendous guitar player. And in terms of what he's doing with voicings and harmony, and he really has some incredibly inventive arrangements of standards and using really very modern harmony in terms of voicing structure and in terms of the available sort of notes that he will have in the chord and that he will assign to the melody. So, and he, he would use very uh, much more dense voicings as well, five and six note chords. Recently, and I was, I was some of my playing has been inspired by this. Uh, there's a duo concert I saw with Ben Monder and Peter Bernstein at uh, the Zinc Bar. And I'm a huge fan of Ben's playing. And Ben had an, I actually posted this on Instagram. Ben had an arrangement of I Remember April that they did. And he's playing these huge six note, really dense chordal voicings. And I'm just like, man, I, you know, and not a lot of guitar players do that. And it's like intense sounds. And I'm like, man, I love that because ideologically, I resonate definitely with um, a lot more of the risk takers. And maybe you could say the outlaws in jazz. Like I love a quote by Wayne Shorter when he says to me, jazz means I dare you. You know, I love that quote. Um, and I love, you know, Frank Zappa. He's like, well, you know, I have a... I have a working knowledge of the fretboard and I have an imagination like that, that type of aesthetic I really like. So I, you know, and it's funny cause a, a great bass player from Pittsburgh recently sent me a version of, um, the four freshman tune, uh, blue world, which I've always loved that song. And he wanted me to check his arrangement and, and see if it was right. And I'm like, why are you asking me? I'm like, you have, I'm like, I'm like, man, you got way better ears than me anyways. Why are you asking me? And I'm like, first of all, I kind of think of myself, because he wanted to ask me if he thought it was correct, and I'm like, I think of myself as kind of a little bit of a harmonic outlaw, in a sense. Like, I'm all about um, trying to get away with things that people say you're not supposed to do. So I'm like, so basically what I was saying to him, I'm like, look, if you want to know if something is correct, then ask it, first of all, ask a piano player. <laughs> Second of all, I mean, like, you know, and I talk about this all the time with my guitar students, um, you know, I... I'm all about trying to put a major seven on a dominant seventh chord. And I remember there was a Gene Bertoncini, and Gene Bertoncini, great guitar player, um, there was a, an exercise that he had where he takes a dominant seventh chord, like a D7, and he puts all 12 notes on the chord. Like, you know, he, you know, he has D up top, then he has, so he has the root, then he has the flat nine, then he has the natural nine, sharp nine, the third. And he, he did every note except he didn't do the major seven. So I took that exercise and I do do the major seven. And my rationale for it is there's a tune called Funkalero by Bill Evans in which he puts the major seven on a chord. So regardless of if we're taught that it's an avoid note on a dominant seventh chord, if Bill Evans does it, then it's okay in jazz. That's And, and, and to me, that sort of trumps you know, whatever is being taught in academia. So so that's something that I will do, but I'll also take 
more risks in terms of, of chords. Um, you know, like for example, in, in that arrangement of Isfahan, I try to sneak in, I think it's Isfahan, but I try to sneak in a flat nine on a major seven. Also sharp, sharp nine, which is more kind of, I mean, that's coming from uh, harmonic minor, but so I, I'll try to do those sort of things just using my ears. And, um, and I've heard other guitar players do that and uh, I, I think it's so I'm always trying to do that so, so I'm kind of like I think I'm a bit of an outlaw like I break those sort of rules but I think part of what we're supposed to do as composers and arrangers um, and also harmonic players is break those sort of rules um, so that's one of the things that I've been kind of focusing on with, like with my trio arrangements is getting these more dense voicings in um, and then another thing is with the solo stuff, there's, there's sort of different ways to think of it. Like I, I heard a recent podcast with Mike Moreno, who's a guitar player that I really like, talking about when he was checking out Joe Pass's solo guitar arrangements. And he brought up an interesting point that I had sort of forgotten about. A lot of Joe Pass's solo stuff, like from the Virtuoso, I mean, based on what Mike was saying, was it's kind of pre-worked out sort of sketches. So that's sort of one approach. So they're, they're sort of pre-worked out um, arrangements and I think don't quote me on this but I think Peter Mazza his stuff because his arrangements are so involved pretty sure those are pre-worked out too but there's room for interpretation within them so like some of the arrangements that I've been posting the solo stuff those are those are for the most part pre-worked out um, but the idea is to sort of it, it's really me it's really kind of it's a way to get new harmony into my playing and to work with new voicings and stuff like that and to strengthen my hands too. Um, but, uh, so there's, you know, like the, like the Joe Pass, sort of the, the sort of pre-worked out approach, but then you can also take the approach where you just play a tune, maybe like someone like Jim Hall or something where it's, it's less worked out. So you're not going to have as much dense voicings perhaps, you know, which is fine. I think that's, that's fine too. Um, with regards to what you're saying about the piano, and this is something that's, that I talk to my students a lot too, in terms of learning harmony on the guitar, imagine if you take a piano and you put it into a wood chipper, and then when it comes out, whatever comes out on the other end, you throw it together with glue and put some strings on it. That's like the guitar. That's like understanding harmony on the guitar. The way that it's configured is very difficult. Um, but the thing is, a lot of, like when you see guitar players, like for example, Mike Moreno, and I was asking him this in his podcast, because I've noticed just from some some transcriptions some of, that I've just caught some of his stuff. He does use some pianistic voicings, and I asked him, I'm like, you know, did you cop these from pianists? Because I, I transcribe pianists as well. But th the thing about the pianistic voicings on the guitar that I notice is you can, and it's, they're, they're tertially built. The problem with playing piano voicings on the guitar is you get stuff that's too stretchy. Because those intervals, it's like you run out of hand, and they get really stretchy, and you can't move them around quick. So that's why there's a lot of drop two techniques applied to these voices on the guitar because it makes it's more suitable to the vertical nature of the way that the strings are configured. Um, but with the piano voicings on the guitar, the harmonic logic is more visible. And as guitar players coming out of Joe Pass and uh, you know the language of, of Herb Ellis, like a lot of it, and, and you know Kenny Burrell and Sal Farley, you visualize things by shape. So if you're playing a minor, an E minor seven flat five chord, and you're playing a piano voicing, 
you can see in the bottom three notes the diminished triad, but then you see the G minor six triad up above. So it's like, oh, that's what that is. So then you can be like, all right, well, you know, if I'm playing with a piano player, instead of playing these big block chords, I can just play G minor triads. You know, I can play, I can play a little G minor six thing. I can get part of it. And then in terms of, as guitar players, oftentimes guitar players are derivative thinkers. Like Pat Martino is, is one that used to um, consider himself a minor mode improviser. Derivative thinking is something guitar players use a lot. So you can be like, oh, minor seven flat five. Oh, boom, I'm gonna think up, I'm gonna automatically just think up a minor third to a minor six chord. So every time I see a minor seven flat five chord, I'm gonna think minor third up, minor six, my Dorian ideas, melodic minor, whatever. So that's what the piano voicings, they kind of reveal. The guitar voicings, they're configured in a way that's more for the physical utility of playing the guitar and for speed and quickness, but they kind of compress the harmonic logic, whereas playing the piano voicings, it's more expanded. And also, I mean, piano is the default instrument for harmony, and that's why we learn it. So learning, learning, learning harmony on the guitar, it's like, it's just, it's difficult. Fretboard harmony is, you know, it's a hard thing to do. So there's a lot of utility for examining piano chords on the guitar, um, I think. But because, uh, again, I'm a big believer in accepting our instrument on its own terms, that does kind of give you some different options with the guitar. You know, you can do sort of a two-handed type thing. You can grab a bass note like that. Um, you know, there's different different sort of things that you can do. But you're never going to be able to do these big sort of spread out things, you know, unless you're Stanley Jordan and you have two guitars. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Th thanks for sharing all that. That that made a lot of sense to me in my mind. It was, was, was very that, helpful. I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I feel like I kind of got off topic. Does that, cause that's such a huge topic. I yeah. could talk about it for hours. Does that answer some of what you're asking? That, that does. That was very informative. Cool. And, um, you know, if you want to keep going on that vein, go ahead. I mean, we got, we got time. That's what the, the long form podcast is for and this is something that that i definitely i'm i'm always trying to find better ways to sort of articulate this with students because on one hand there's the issue of understanding the logistics of the guitar and the fretboard and the terminology and related to that and the terminology and the logistics of the guitar and the fretboard that are related to when how the guitar was designed when antonio del torres came up with a modern guitar in the uh, late 1800s in Spain, which was basically a Spanish classical guitar. Every other guitar evolved out of that. So the way that it was configured, okay, you know, wh why do we have six courses of strings that for the most part are, uh, I mean, they're a perfect fourth apart, except you have G and B as a major third um, distance. Okay, so, so that's, you know, that's completely different from the piano, totally different. And the other thing in terms of just the playability you know, many instruments, even if, if the two hands are doing different harmonic functions or harmonic ones may be doing on the piano, one's doing maybe melody, one's doing harmony. On the guitar, you have this, and then you have this, or this, or that. So the synchronicity, excuse me, the synchronicity of that is, is really difficult. Um, but it's kind of like first students need to understand when they're dealing with harmony um, that the structure that they're interpreting harmony is, it's not like the, it's probably not the best for learning harmony. For learning harmony, piano, I, I think. Um, that's how a lot of the harmonic language evolved out of. But then it's like you have to take the harmony that you're studying on the page 
then you have to translate it and configure it for the guitar. So there's like another big step that has to be done. And that's, you know, that, that, that's a complicated process. Um, and a lot of people really struggle with ever learning harmony in any sort of meaningful way on the guitar because they can't, they, they don't really get over that initial um, understanding of, you know, you have to sort of transmute the harmonic language of the piano onto the guitar. And the same thing goes with reading and other things. I mean, now again, there are advantages about that. One advantage is you can take any scale shape and you can take it through all 12 keys and you don't need to change your finger, you know, so that's a great advantage. Uh, you know, you could say that there's an advantage for having four or five middle C's on the guitar. Um, and there's definitely advantages in terms of ar arranging and in terms of, you know, like exploiting different unison ideas and things like that. And also the idea that you can quickly visualize things over shapes. Um, you know, I mean, and, and again, some of the, some of the greatest guitar players, Joe Pass, uh, Wes Montgomery, Jimi Hendrix, they couldn't read any music. You know, and, and a lot of their, uh, as I understand it, their harmonic understanding was based on stuff that other cats would show them or that they just learned by ear. Um, and then they eventually kind of pieced together. Now there's a lot more educational resources available for that. But so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think in general, the, the history of the guitar, it really kind of started as sort of kind of, you know, like a, a gypsy instrument or like an outlaw instrument, you know, um, it wasn't until Segovia was able to, you know, really assimilate a lot of the classical repertoire into the guitar that he helped to sort of elevate it um, in the direction of where the piano went. And then it wasn't until Charlie Christian, you know, because when Charlie, as I understand it, when he approached Benny Goodman and he wanted to play guitar and he wanted to solo, Benny Goodman's like, you know, guitar is a, it's a beggar's instrument. It's a street person's instrument, you know, and, and prior to that, the guitar in that sort of uh, setting would be, just rhythm stuff, or they before that they would have the banjo, but Charlie Christian's like, no man, I can I can blow, and and he really served to elevate it uh, in the realm of jazz to a much more exalted position in the language. So, you know, it took pioneers like that to sort of to sort of do that. Um, and, and again, the history of the guitar in terms of its harmonic language and just its its language in general, it's a lot younger than the piano. Mm -hmm. So they're very different instruments, yet we compete for the same job. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, in 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 your uh, larger groups, I know we've been talking a lot about solo and and trio playing, but um, you you have a how many is that? Uh, one, two, three. Is it a sextet? Three. I'm Four. sorry. You have a quartet. Quint quintet. You have a quintet. Uh, right? well, well on the record that I have out now, yeah, that that's quintet, quintet but. Yeah. Around the city, I mean, I, I, I play music from that and, you know, everything from duo, trio, quartet, and, and mm -hmm. quintet. And, and at some point, I'm trying to broaden it out to more of a, a larger sort of setting. Yeah. But it's just, it really gets down to the economic utility yeah. of doing that. Absolutely. But as you know. Uh, uh, I kind of want to transition a little bit to talking about compositions yep. and, and uh, your album, uh, NYC Stories. And sure. uh, on that album, you have the great George Burton uh, yep. playing piano, um, which is a nice Philly connection here. And, uh, yeah, man. And, uh, and also a little shout out to Wayne Smith, you know? Yeah, this. man. And, and also Paul Wells, who I, I knew from when I was in the Lehigh Valley, uh, oh, doing cool. my undergrad, he was living out, out there, um, before he moved to New York. And, um, 
uh, I got to play with him a bit uh, there. Yeah, he, and, yeah man, he lives down the block. He literally oh, cool. lives right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a great dude. Um, I used to play yeah, in, a, in a funk band with him. I was like, oh, nice. I, I just knew him as, I would see him at sessions and, and jazz stuff, and he would just be you know, playing brushes. and that, That's kind of how I knew him, as like the guy that could play brushes amazingly. And then, yeah. We, then we were just like playing in this funk band. He's just like laying it down. I was like, whoa, man. Yeah, he's a, he's a bad dude. Yeah, but I want to get back to um, your compositions and uh, having a pianist in the group, and kind of how how do you write for how, how do you approach having uh, piano and guitar? in the same in the same world so um with like for me i guess ever since i started writing you know in in the genre of 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 jazz it's really been i've always had certain people in mind certain individuals um and that's always been a really important thing for me i always feel like jazz it's really about unique individuals um having a unique voice and telling a story and um you know one of the things with George is I don't know I just always vibe we always vibe with each other personally and and, and musically and I always liked where he was coming from ideologically like again like as I said I'm a risk taker uh, you know and like that aesthetic resonates with me and, and that's definitely where he's coming from so that inspired me um and I thought you know having you know playing with him and and what happens on the bandstand was always a very positive thing and and I started playing in his band um and then eventually you know I I, I had him in mind for my band and um you know it's kind of like with him at least uh with this last record it was more like you know I had these ideas and then when we would play the music then he would just do something I'm like yeah that's whatever you did there that fills that really serves a great purpose and and so it's like I mean there's you know there's definitely room and and space and I try to sort of leave space and and I'm totally cool um especially with someone like George completely like not um not comping or not playing but other times also sort of playing comping within him and then working something out where it's like he's doing sort of other kind of stuff in and around where it's a different type of textural sort of a dense kind of harmonic texture that's created which I like I like these sort of like kind of um, sort of fluctuating kind of like organic harmonic textures that are that are moving in different directions that are like this sort of moving organic kind of harmony type thing I like that sort of thing I think that is very inspiring to interact with and I think that can be very inspiring for a soloist um, and also for an ensemble so in terms of the idea of kind of clashing that wasn't really a concern in that context um, because it's it's I guess a lot more of a harmonically open context generally with piano players though I always felt it really kind of depends on the player Um, there's sort of more inside piano players that I've played with that are just marvelous more kind of uh, inside straight ahead players where it's like a lot of times you can hear what their voicings are and then you like you, you can play like just sort of guide tones or not get in their way or you know do something where you're doing something at the same time that they are and it adds and 
it doesn't um, necessarily uh, take away. But that's always a difficult thing. And in terms of you know piano and guitar, I, I think the best the best thing is it really comes down to the players. And sometimes there's maybe a prearranged thing, or they or they like I think the whole day of like all right here I'm gonna lay out you lay out here. I I don't think that that's should that's a little bit too contrived. Um, but but in other I mean it, it just depends on the individuals. Generally, I think if there was one way to kind of teach about it, it's like okay, either you want to do something that's very specific, very clear and deliberate, but that doesn't that serves a certain rhythmic purpose, that's orchestrated that doesn't clash with what the piano player is doing harmonically or rhythmically, or you lay out, or you do textural stuff, you know, um, those are some good solutions. But even then, it gets very subjective, and, and the context and the genre is really key. So, I mean, with George, it's just, ideologically, we connected, um, and in terms of where we're coming from, so it was never really a concern, um, and I like it, even the times where it does clash and gets crunchy, I like that spirit, because then it's like we're kind of both playing out sort of together. And I, and I, and I, like, that, I like that sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, the piano player on my last record, Mike Murray, who's a phenomenal piano player as well, rest, and he's no longer with us, unfortunately, rest in peace, Mike Murray. Um, with him, it was a little bit more of a... Uh, a little bit more of an inside approach, a little bit more of a confined sort of thing. But he would also use a lot of uh, pianoist, pianistic, or sorry, guitaristic voicings, which was cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think I think it really depends on the relationship that the guitar player and the yeah. piano player have. Because it's a tough thing, you yeah, know. Absolutely, and uh, I asked that specific hard question. Yeah, I asked that specifically because I know how difficult of a thing it is, and uh, how much yeah how uh, how much people think about, it, especially guitarists and pianists. Um, but yeah, that, that's uh, I really like that approach of uh, writing for the person or you know envisioning yeah. the, the personality of of maybe you don't even if you don't have like a specific person or like that specific person can't make the gig, you still know that general vibe that you want. So you can find that person or someone that can do something like that, which is going back to moving to a bigger scene. That's, uh, I, I tell that to students who, who are thinking about moving to a bigger city. Like that's one of the advantages. You can have a pool of people that can fulfill that thing instead of there's just being one person or sometimes nobody that can do that in your yeah in your area and uh, absolutely um but i'd like to i'd like to talk a little bit about uh your new record um and uh like i said before we're, we're both on the on the outside in music uh family so um that's how i i got to know you through that and uh uh, yeah, how, how did the record uh, come about? And um, yeah, like you, you're, I, I like I like to hear about writing processes. That's just me. So any, yeah, anything about how how you write, uh, and specifically for this album. Um, um sure. Uh, so it it kind of started as essentially um, 
In one part, it was a documentation of just my working bands around New York for a period of, say, three or four years, and the material that I was playing, the compositions that I was doing, um, a lot of which I ended up writing in, ter in terms of a compositional approach. Um, I wanted to have stuff that I could pretty much put on the bandstand that cats would be able to play through without necessarily having to rehearse. Um, so there, there was kind of a like a utility towards the writing process. So that was that I kind of used one compositional challenge because for a while I was like, okay, yeah, I can write stuff like that, but I don't like it, or I throw it away as soon as I'm done, or it's just, you know. So so I'm like, I have to find a way where I can write the way that I write. I feel good about it. It's centered around whatever idea I'm I'm thinking of or whatever that I'm inspired by, but it also there's there's a pragmatism um behind it which means i can actually do it because some of the tunes that i played from my previous record um called homefront which i did back in pittsburgh some of those tunes i remember playing them initially when i was in new york around the first times i i, I would lead my group and and the problem that i had is um the material was more some of the material was more intricate and I just felt like, okay, it required more rehearsing. And I didn't have really the budget for that and it was just too prohibitive and that just kind of made it, that kind of made it too difficult um, in a sense. So I was like, all right, well, I need to be able to find a way where I can lead my bands and, and for a while play at places where I'm not making money or losing money and, and uh, where I don't have to rehearse, I don't have to pay for a rehearsal space or pay guys to rehearse. So I gotta find a way where I can write stuff that's just easier for cats to read down. So that was a compositional challenge that I focused on. Um, and the other thing is like other stuff, like okay, I need to be able to write a song in an hour or as close to an hour, which I had yet to be able to do. Before I would sort of, and, and there's, I'm not saying I can do that every time, like there'll be one of the tunes on my record New York Story, NYC Stories, I had an idea, the rhythmic figure, like I had in my mind for over a decade, longer than that. Um, and I just, so I wanted to kind of finally incorporate that rhythmic figure. Um, but in large part, uh, the material for, and this record came about is, I wanted to document my working bands, but also um, the session, it, it was originally a writing session. I wanted to record this music because I've had some success um, getting my music licensed for film and TV as a way to monetize it and make money from it. So I wanted to get some good quality recordings of some newer works to submit to these music libraries um, in hopes of getting them non-exclusively licensed for TV and film in which I can make residuals and make good money um, from that. And that's how the, this sort of started. And then I was like, well, you know what? It is time for me to do another record anyways. And, you know, I was happy with how the initial session came out. And I was like, there's something here. I was like, if I, I was like, there's something that I can build on uh, from this to make a record, which is essentially what I did. And then I wrote some newer material for the actual record. And that material was inspired by certain things and certain ideas that are kind of um, the story and the narrative behind the record, um, you know, for those who battle demons and, and, uh, just the idea of NYC stories and a lot of the things that 
they're basically snapshots of, of, of stories and my life in New York and also stuff, some of it that I wrote when I was touring and abroad and stuff like that, but also well in New York. So it kind of evolved out of that. So it evolved out of really just stuff that I wanted to document for music libraries, but then I was like, okay, there's something I can build on here. I need to do another record anyways. I want to document my working bands. And there also is a cohesive theme that was sort of kind of manifesting itself to me. And it, you know, it sort of revealed itself to me. And I wanted to express that. And I also wanted to, you know, sort of talk about the idea of those who battle demons. And that's something, you know, that I dealt with personally and other friends and colleagues to play this music who have succumbed uh, in their battle with their own demons. And that's a big part, I think, of the history and the legacy of this music, whether the demon is, you know, um, drugs or alcohol or, uh, you know, um, mental health or just the life and the struggle uh, in this city of, you know, just trying to survive and, and you know, feeling that, uh, there's such an exercise in futility and, 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 and all of these things. And it's a myth, it, you know, the first track, which I specifically wrote for this album, it's really an extra, it's really, a um, a message of encouragement. Uh, you know, it's a message of encouragement and also, you know, it, it's kind of trying to sort of remember those who, who, who succumb to this music. In, in one way or another that that their efforts are not in vain and they're remembered um, you know and, and, and a method uh, a message to keep striving and to keep to keep battling and to keep fighting um, so that's that's a lot of what that's about you know and I you know I think I think I think of people like like the piano player on my last record Michael Murray the other piano player on my last record Don DePaulis Jimmy Ponder who was a great jazz guitarist from Pittsburgh who was very inspiring to me and influential and then just others that I know Lawrence Low Leathers uh, and just so I mean it's kind of like that it's it really is kind of a battle a spiritual sort of battle and you know, and that song is really a message and the overall arching theme of the record is to keep striving in spite of the battle through your music, through your art. And I think that's really important. So. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that is, and we talked a bunch about, uh, or you had mentioned a lot about um, your uh, mentors you've had over the years and the encouragement they gave you. And, uh, yeah, I've definitely as well have known, uh, you know, people who have left us too early and people who have, people who have given up on the, on the fight and, um, right. It's, it's reciprocal. So, uh, you know, we get encouragement and give it. So, you know, and thanks, thanks, thanks very much for sharing that with, uh, with everybody and, uh, that positive message. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Um, no, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I think that's a good note to leave it on. So where? Um, yeah, man. Where where can people uh, find you? What's the best way for people to find you and be in touch with you and and check out your music? Yeah. So um, uh, my website is 
it's it's www. What is it? It's artistecard.com. Uh, Andy Bianco at artistecard. Um, at least that's that's what my current website is. Uh, and then you know I'm on I'm on Facebook, and then I'm uh, as Andy Bianco Music, and also Andy Bianco, and I'm also on Instagram as uh, Bianco Andy. Uh, so you can find me there, and my record is available at the uh, um, on the Outside In uh, Records website, as w- uh, as well as Next Level is the imprint that the record's on. But so so it's on there. So. So yeah, NYC Stories, this one is out currently now on Outside In Records, um, and this features George Burton and Wayne Escoffrey, special guests. I also am talking about my other two records just because I'm trying to trying to make as, as much revenue and sort of as, as I can at this time since we're not working. So the previous record, Homefront, which is on Armored Records, um, and that features all of my music but also some compositions by Don DePaulis who is an elder statesman of Pittsburgh jazz um, Homefront this record it's sort of my tribute to the modern jazz legacy of Pittsburgh which a lot of people kind of view of view as sort of a hard-bought town which it is but in the late 70s or sorry early 70s Don DePaulis who was a very influential piano player um, you know he would perform with uh, Pat Martino would come from Philly and and Don DePaulis would play in a group with Eric Kloss and Pat Martino at a place called The Stage Door in Pittsburgh, and they would play a lot of modern modern jazz stuff. And two of his compositions from the early 70s I record, which have never been recorded before, called uh, Hand Revealed Messages and uh, Song of the Changing Seasons, which, is, which were recorded in the early 70s. So I wanted to document that aspect of his writing and just a little bit of a, give people a little bit of a snapshot of the modern jazz legacy of Pittsburgh, um, you know, and also the connection to Philadelphia uh, with, you know, Pat, and, and sometimes he would bring some of his sidemen. Fortunately, I don't have any knowledge of who they would, who they would have been at that time, but, so that record, and then my, my first record, which is a duo uh, album that I did with Bob Moses that I recorded way back in 2005, which is totally avant-garde. Um, ben Monder calls it an intense and terrifying journey and this is just guitar and drums duo um, and it's essentially it's basically a two or three hour session of complete free playing that Bob and I recorded and then I edited into sort of what I seemed as compositional spaces so it's just sort of chopped that way Um, and it's called Forces of the Wild Um, and that, that's a very intense, very uh, dark album. And it's, it's not, it's, it's, ve- it's very, very avant-garde, very, very out there. But that's one where, and sometimes I think it's kind of my boldest thing that I've done. Forces of the Wild, which is available um, on my website. It's available uh, on Amazon and Homefront. Uh, on Armored Records, which is also available online, and then of course NYC Stories. Great, thanks, Andy, man. Appreciate you, Andy. Andy Bianco, take it easy, man. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, your voice 
is your power.